Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talked to my colleague and friend, Matt Bennett. He is an expert on Islam, has spent a lot of time overseas working uh, in Muslim populations. And so it'd be a really interesting conversation to talk to him about Islamic theology, what's true, what's false, the history of it, and things like that. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Matt Bennett. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now, my conversation with Matt Bennett. But first, no big deal. Typically, podcasts uh, lately have been on Zoom, but we get to actually look into each other's eyes from across the room here on campus at Cedarville. It's glorious in its awkwardness. I love it. <laughs> uh, Matt's one of my uh, good friends. We've been in small group together for the last three years until I recently defected to start my own. Uh, planted. Yeah, we multiplied. We, we multiplied. didn't split. Yeah, multiplied, not split. That's right. Uh, well, Matt has spent a long time uh, overseas working in Muslim populations. Uh, tell a little bit about just your background of doing missions, particularly where you were and the, the type, of, type of work you were doing. Yeah, so my wife and I worked with a team of three other folks, along with some short-term people, over a span of about seven years working in North Africa and the Middle East, largely spending our time uh, sharing the gospel with Muslim people, um, interacting with them, teaching English as a day-in and day-out sort of activity, um, but having spiritual conversations in any number of tea shops or coffee shops uh, throughout the Middle East. Okay, I want you to share the story. You've shared it publicly enough times. I want you to share the story of when you saved a child's life because <laughs> it's a great story uh, because it, it is in some sense to me like an intro into the world that you were living in, being in a Muslim culture. Just yeah. kind of explain that story and how that gives a little insight into sort of just what the world was like that you were you were doing mission work Yeah, in. it definitely does give some insight into culture. Um, my wife and I went down to the Mediterranean Sea one day kind of in the midst of really stressful ministry time, trying to get away, catch our breath on a weekend, set up shop, put down our towels, and we're starting to kind of relax under the, the Mediterranean sun. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, a commotion broke out. We looked up, and there's a kid about 30 yards offshore who is clearly unable to touch the bottom any longer, can't swim, uh, and nobody's doing anything about it. There's like a father and his teenage son who are on the shore who are like shouting at the kid but nobody's going out to save him. So I, I just jumped up, took, took off down the beach, got to the kid, and then uh, he was he was fine, you know, spitting out seawater and all of that, but got him back to his father and was kind of expecting a pretty good uh, excitement that you know, I had just saved this child's life. Um, but the, the dad who was yelling at him from the shore continued yelling at him uh, and took him out of my hands, never even acknowledged that I was there, and stormed off down the beach shouting at the kid for his foolishness to float <laughs> away. I can only assume that some of it was motivated by his father feeling like he had been embarrassed publicly because maybe he couldn't swim and couldn't go retrieve his son, and this danger was going to be public, and so he was frustrated with that public shame that he had undergone. But yeah. It was, a, it was a fun little walk back to my towel as I uncelebratedly <laughs> returned back to my wife. Well, just saved a kid's life, yeah. so no big deal. <laughs> no big deal. Mm. Um, so how does that give a little insight into the day-to-day -day there? Because you, you've shared a lot of stories that are interesting to me about 
if you know somebody's getting mugged on the street like it's just like we're going to be good hospitable neighbors and people but then there's also this whole other side that i think you're, you're describing there of the honor shame culture uh some of the family dynamics patriarchy and all these different things that are happening so maybe give a little insight and just like what is a daily life in a muslim run or populated place. Uh, you can read a lot of books on culture that give very broad brush treatments of, oh, the West is guilt innocence and the East is uh, honor shame in terms of the basis for how a person estimates their value or their image in society. And uh, those things are largely helpful as categories that might be weighted differently in different places. I think sometimes they, they get a little bit overblown in that we would say, oh, the Middle East is a collectivist society. And so there's you know much more of an interest in a person's image as a uh, component of the broader culture, society, community, which is true in a sense. There's more of a, a sense of identity that comes from playing your role within society, but as illustrated even by that, that father, he was more than likely feeling the individual shame of not being able to play his fatherly role mm -hmm. in a protective sort of way within the, the society. And so he was perhaps receiving more of a sense of dishonor from the, the image he was bearing in the community. It was also uh, an individually felt thing. Yeah. So I don't want to necessarily overplay uh, the exclusivity of honor and shame in a culture or collectivist versus individualist, but there's definitely much more of a sensitivity to how a person is viewed by their colleagues mm -hmm. that determines who they are, whereas perhaps in an American uh, Western society, we would be more inclined to say, well, you internally get to determine your identity and who yeah. you are. And it's on the community to recognize that rather than you to play a part that the community determines. So that would yeah. be some of the difference. So if you could give one thing about Muslim culture that you would say, American culture could learn from this and do better. Would it be something like that, the communal responsibility, that sort of thing? Or, or how would you explain some of that? Yeah, I mean, like to your point earlier that you were talking about the fact that if somebody's doing something wrong, the community is going to jump on them. There's a story that one of my friends uh, told of having somebody in the middle of the night, a woman walking down the street in their neighborhood who was being accosted by some youths. And some street youths. <laughs> some street youths. <laughs> and uh, being youths of the area, they were being unkind and bringing shame on her and, and accosting her. And she started yelling out. And within, uh, by the time that my friend could move to the balcony to see what was going on, storekeepers had flowed out and they were beating the junk out of this kid <laughs> um, because they were recognizing that this person was being treated poorly in their community. And if they didn't act in order to defend this guest, they would bear the shame of being an inhospitable community. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense of ownership of, of uh, a welcoming, hospitable society that each person is, is invested in. And if somebody steps out of line, the rest of the community is going to come alongside and, and call them into line. And I think there's something, there's something good about that. And there's yeah. certainly, on a less maybe um, violent way, there is uh, a lot of that that the church is supposed to be doing, right? And yeah. caring for one another and calling one another to live out the gospel and in places where somebody might stray, that community calling them back in lovingly, but also clearly saying, hey, you're, you're walking out of step with the gospel. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Far too often we instead turn to our friend and talk about how badly that other person is, is operating and never actually address them or bring about some sort of a fruitful engagement. Yeah, I think, man, if we, if we catch some street views on the mean streets of Cedarville, <laughs> you and I go out there and jump them. I'll take, we can take care of it. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> we, 
We can take care of it. All right. So I want to talk about maybe some truths and lies about Islam. So just really get into kind of the nitty gritty of what do they believe? Where do they come from? Uh, I've shared the story with you before, but when I was at Criswell College doing my master's, uh, Scott Bridger was there, spent a lot of time in the Middle East, somebody yeah, you know. And uh, I remember him just saying one time, oh, like most people probably assume that Muhammad was not a real person. And that to me was just like, I mean, you know, I'll deny the spiritual things about the Quran, but I, I just didn't have a category for, I assumed the Quran is a historical document about a guy who lived and there's obviously some embellishment, but you know, I've never would have thought Muhammad's not a real person. Mm -hmm. So maybe kind of start there, like where, where does Islam come from and what are some of these big questions about the historical veracity of Muhammad and maybe the early communities that they sure. write about? Yeah, so uh, what, what Scott would have been referring to, I think, is probably some of the trajectory in contemporary critical scholarship that's looking at the, the historical claims of a person named Muhammad and saying, eh, this is actually pretty dubious and any sort of corroborating evidence that we might have is either late Islamic data, so coming from stories that were orally transmitted and finally written down maybe a couple hundred years after uh, Muhammad's supposed life, or they're uh, just simply absent within the extra Islamic materials. And so uh, you're looking at kind of biased material that's also late, that's talking about this person that probably is an amalgamation of stories that serve the political interests of the people who are perpetuating those stories in those places um, a couple hundred years after the events supposedly happened. But if you were to ask most practicing Muslims in the mm -hmm. Middle East, they would out of, out of hand say, well, of course Muhammad was a, a real person. So there's some discrepancy in the data that backs that up, um, mm -hmm. the stories that are told. There's, not, there's really no evidence from Muhammad's life that he existed. Um, in fact, some have even looked at the name Muhammad and said, well, we have taken this to be a proper name, but there's no reason for it to not also simply be functioning adjectivally. Um, the way that the Arabic language works is kind of similar to Hebrew in that you've got a trilateral root that you can build different verbal forms off of. And mm -hmm. so Muhammad comes from the root form, Hamad, the praise. And it could mean someone who is highly praised, more mm -hmm. highly exalted. And that's led to some very intriguing uh, conversations, even looking at other Semitic languages and even Christian populations that would have referred to maybe even Jesus as the highly praised one. Mm -hmm. And so that those are fringe groups who are taking that trajectory to say maybe Muhammad isn't actually a historical person, but is a heretical sect that's referring to a Jesus who is not divine, but is just a prophet. Mm -hmm. And then you could see the influence traced out in some of the Quranic uh, teaching and later Islamic theology that's carrying forward a, a Christ concept that is devoid of being divine. Yep. Um, so there's some interesting trajectories that that line of thought takes, but in terms of the historical veracity of a, a person named Muhammad, there's mm -hmm. some pretty significant gaps. Yeah. Okay. So kind of expanding out some of this about these early communities, you know, one of the things that, that you've written about and we've talked about is perhaps Islam has its roots in some Christological heresies. Uh, John of Damascus is, is calling them just another false Christian group, mm -hmm. you know, which, which hundreds of years later, to be fair, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, like mm -hmm. they seem to be considered as such by a lot of early Christians. So let me talk through the, maybe what you think is most likely and maybe what's like, oh, that, that's a fun thing to think about, but maybe yeah. isn't legit. And where does that all fit together? Yeah. I mean, when you're looking backwards at the 
historical origins, I think there's lots of those things that fall into the fun category mm -hmm. of like, hey, if there's this huge gap of information and there's some other rabbit trails that we can trace that might have fruitful connections to up till this point, uh, communities that didn't even seem to be in the conversation, um, groups like um, you know, Aramaic-speaking Christians who would have a... Um, a heretical conception of who Christ is, but who uh, would be speaking a, a language that would be native to the region and perhaps adopted into uh, into Arabic, compiling from some of their writings uh, elements of, of teaching that make their way into what later is codified as the Quran. I think there's lots of lots of those questions of influence that are uh, intriguing to academics, mm -hmm. but in terms of like the actual work of being a neighbor to a Muslim, a lot of those things end up being inconsequential because, you know, if we're if we're not convinced from the outset that the Quran is divine revelation that we should be attending to, mm -hmm. then to some degree, wherever it came from and whatever its origins are not of consequence to a Christian, yeah. but rather what role do these documents have in forming the thought of, of your Muslim neighbor? Mm -hmm. That's a far more consequential conversation because that's going to bring you into a, a conversation with yeah. a real person who is working with a set of assumptions and a set of um, you know, uh, narratives that are driving them to function in a certain way in this time. And yeah. so that's where the rubber meets the road of engaging with your Muslim friends. And so you ask the question, you know, how do we, how do we discern the the myth or the stereotype uh, mm. that sometimes we might inherit as Christians living in America from what is, is real. And I'd say the first thing is um, uh, for us to look at our Muslim neighbors as people who are, um, who are people and who are eager to make friends and likewise actually people who are easy to talk about things of faith with. Mm. I think those three factors need to be some of those central components of how we approach the Muslim community in our neighborhoods, not thinking in terms of categorizing them with some of the things that we have seen shaped by news stories or events mm -hmm. of the past, but rather seeing them as, as people who are bearing the image of God and then who are also shaped in their worldview by some of these texts that we may not be familiar with. So yeah. once we engage them as people and as friends, we're going to find that there's ample opportunity for talking about things of faith, caring for people, and honestly, finding ourselves cared for very quickly. The Muslim community is incredible at hospitality and incredible at uh, forging meaningful relationships. So let that just be a little bit of encouragement to put some of those stereotypical fears or um, uh, any, any of the ignorance that might drive us to say, well, I don't even know where I'd start put that to rest because yep. engaging the Muslim community is is fruitful if for friendship and for opportunities to to learn yeah if you think about like apologetics or just you know you got a Muslim neighbor the, the history of the church is probably the reason why they consider Islam a sect of Christianity mm -hmm. is that Jesus does feature mm -hmm. in the Quran so talk through some of that right because that, that could be a starting point of talking but it also could be probably the biggest the, the biggest turn, like, like, yeah, yeah, Jesus isn't God. We're not talking about this anymore. Yeah. So talk about just the role of Jesus in the Quran and the Islamic faith, because I think that that helps us kind of think through how we might talk to them or how we might not. Yeah. 
No, that that's good. And as you mentioned, John of Damascus is kind of one of those early writers who talks about Islam as a Christian heresy or Christological heresy. Even Luther picks up on the Mohammedans, as he calls them, mm-hmm. as those who are uh, heretics, um, not necessarily viewing them as a separate religion, at least in terms of the nomenclature that he uses. And, and I do think that's on the basis, not necessarily of tracing some sort of historical root to these communities, Mm -hmm. but more in response to the theology that's taught particularly uh, around the person of Jesus. And so you're going to find, you sit down with a taxi driver or a Muslim neighbor, and they're going to be willing to talk about Jesus all day long. In fact, I don't can't tell you how many times I've heard Muslim friends say, I can't even be a good Muslim without believing in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So like, we're actually a whole lot more the same than, uh, than you realize. Uh, in that sort of a comment, I think it's important to be able to say this is good for conversation, but we also still need to recognize uh, that there, there's some clarification as to what it means for a Muslim to affirm that they believe in Jesus versus what we would say we believe in Jesus by means of the, the Bible. Uh, because in the Quran, you've got a Jesus who's a prophet. He's a miracle worker. Um, he raises people from the dead. He is uh, one who's said to be bringing truth from God, revelation from God. And all of these things would support a recognition that we're talking about the same figure. But then when you consider some of the deeper, more theological questions about who is this Jesus, um, the affirmation of him as the biblical character stops at the point of him being a prophet. Mm-hmm. It undermines the idea that God could ever have a son, and it does so by sort of emphasizing the the folly of God entering into a sexual relationship with Mary and producing Mm -hmm. a son, that this would be the concept of the Trinity that's being rejected. Um, So it kind of makes fun of the the Christian idea of the Trinity by Mm -hmm. bringing these non-Trinitarian characters or this non-Trinitarian character in Mary into the conversation and proposing that the son was produced by sexual means. Mor- uh, Mormons say that, by the way. So they, they, if they want to talk to Mormons about that, Mormons say that the father has a body. So You know, if somebody, if somebody wants to write the book of comparing Mormon theology with Islamic theology, I think that's a book ready, mm-hmm. ready to mm-hmm. be written. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of parallels there. Um, Sorry I sidetracked you. but No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I just thought about that when you said that. Yeah. Um, so if, and then the, I guess beyond denying that he is divine in any way, there's also a denial in the fourth surah. That's a famous section in which it, uh, it denies that Jesus was crucified. Mm. Now it's a little bit of a difficult to interpret passage. There's some tricky bits about it, but most Islamic theology that develops after, uh, after the writing of the Quran uh, tells uh, tells of this section being a uh, denial of Jesus's death at all, um, mm. and there's sort of two different trajectories that the traditions take. Take one would say Jesus was assumed to heaven, and Judas was made to look like him. And so, as Judas tried to betray Jesus, uh, he sort of gets his just desserts by being crucified in Jesus's spot. Mm. There's another, other traditions that talk about Jesus at the point of being arrested, going back to his followers and asking for volunteers, saying, which one of you will die in my place? Because, of course, it would be ignoble for a prophet of God to be put to such shame. And Mm -hmm. so one of his followers takes it upon themselves to be 
made in Jesus' image to, to look like Jesus. He's arrested, dies in his place, and kind of gets this martyr's death. Jesus, again, is assumed to heaven, and uh, he also points forward to say, hey, I'm, I'm going away, but Ahmed is coming. Mm. So despite some of those superficial similarities, I think when you're asking if Jesus is the, the key to mm. the gospel biblically, is this same Jesus present in the Quran? No, I mean, Jesus doesn't. Yeah, Jesus doesn't from the cross declare it is finished as he offers his atoning death in place of sinners, mm-hmm. but rather he avoids the cross. <laughs> he doesn't die in place of sinners, but actually one of his followers mm-hmm. dies in his place. And then he points to not a coming kingdom in which he will reign in a newly created heavens and earth, but rather he points ahead to Muhammad or Ahmed, who is coming to continue the revelation in that stead. So there's both traction in talking to our Muslim friends about Jesus, but there's also a lot of opportunity to ask questions about saying, okay, you said you believe in Jesus. Tell me, what do you mean? What do you call yeah. to mind when you say you do? Are there any, this is complete ignorance on my part, are there any quotes from the Gospels in the Quran? I mean, obviously there's some shared stories yeah. of Old Testament stuff. Is there, is, what does that look like? There's, there are no quotes uh, directly from Scripture. The closest thing has to do with one of the Ten Commandments, um, but even that is not verbatim. And most scholars would say that uh, it's not until the 8th century that there's a translation of the Scriptures into Arabic. So at best, you would have had Arabic-speaking Christian communities who are relating the stories of the Bible mm-hmm. in translation orally up to that point. And so uh, it's, it would be unlikely given that historical development, for there to be verbatim quotes. So, yeah, so it would all be oral tradition from Arabic-speaking Christians at best. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Okay, so another thing you talk about, you know, fearing your Muslim neighbor. Obviously, we are on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. That brings a lot of questions about jihad and and all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, I've I've seen it plenty of times, people quoting the Quran and saying, look, the Quran says right here, kill the infidels. Mm -hmm. You know, jihad is this great thing. But then there's this whole other sect or ver- various sects of Islam that say, no, we're not violent at all. That's actually not what that means. That's not what we're supposed to do. So maybe uh, adjudicate the, the different schools of Islam, if you will, from the radical to the kind of maybe what you experienced as just nice yeah. neighbors, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know, in North Africa. And what do you think is, if you could give a guess, what do you think is the closest to the correct interpretation, if you could, hmm. if you have an opinion <laughs> on that? Man, that, that opens a number of cans of can of worms. I would say, first off, if you're looking for how many Muslims worldwide would be of the radical, militant, offensive, jihadi perspective, you're looking at a very small percentage. I mean, five or less percent of, the, of Muslims would be actively convinced that Islam teaches them to aggressively attack um, in the name of Allah or to seize territory in an offensive sort of way. Jihad is a word that gets debated throughout the early traditions um, as to what it means. Mm-hmm. Most people are going to see two different levels of jihad. One they'll call the, the greater jihad and the lesser jihad. The greater jihad is taught by most of the influential teachers up to this point would say the greater jihad is actually an inner struggle. Mm -hmm. That's the word jihad just translates to something like struggle. And it's, it could be compared in some ways to Christian sanctification. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously 
without the role of the Holy Spirit in there, but the, the internal fight to do what is right, to remember the ways of Allah, to follow his guidance and submit our will to him. So that is the, the greater jihad that most Islamic theologians will uh, advance. The lesser jihad ends up getting divided into two different categories. One would be taking up arms in defense of Islam. Um, so if you are being aggressed against, um, can you say that? Is that normal? Aggressed against. Aggressed against. Sure. All right. If somebody's, coming at you, all time, so. if somebody's coming at you, if somebody's coming at you, then you can defend yourself and do so in you know good moral standing. Mm -hmm. The other um, tack would say, well, this is actually not just defensive but aggressive um, command to fight in the name of Allah. So, so all would agree on the greater, the internal struggle, and there'd be more debate about the secondary. About is that what you're saying, or? Yeah, and some some within the the camp of the aggressive, more radical interpretation would probably deny some of the greater, lesser yeah, just categories. Say just say, like, yeah. well, of course you're supposed to follow God's guidance, and yes, maybe you could describe it as struggle, but the verses call us to mm -hmm. fight in the way of Allah. So probably some would deny those categories. Okay. But you're right. The, the biggest tension is between those who would say we can actively uh, – we can actively attack in the name of God versus we are allowed to defend. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the question of which one is right is a really hard one to adjudicate because you've got this doctrine within Islam called abrogation, which basically teaches whatever verses are most recently revealed are the ones that are binding on the current community. Mm. And if there are instructions that would seem to be in contradiction with one another, then the, the earlier ones that are written are thought to be time-bound or pertinent for a particular season. Maybe Muhammad and his early followers, as they are developing strength and um, uh, fighting against the polytheists of their day, there was more openness for them to, to aggress um, in order to uh, attack so as to see the, the message go out farther, whereas... Mm -hmm. Once they're established, there's maybe more of a peaceful inclination would be how the majority would take things. And so they would order the verses that are more peaceful as coming later and the verses that are more aggressive as coming earlier. The thing is, there's nothing internal to the Quran to give any indication of which verses mm -hmm. were revealed earlier and which were later. It's not like not like the Bible where it's like Christ clearly has come to fulfill X, Y, Z. Yeah. There's there's no chronological development. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you look at the traditions and say, what is thought to be the first verse that was revealed to Muhammad? It's chapter 96, verses 1 through 5. And the traditions would teach that the last verse to be revealed was chapter 5, verse 3. Mm. And so there's an interweaving of some chronology that is really it's impossible using the Quran alone to make that discernment as to which is later and which is earlier. That's why those later traditions 200 years later are written down and they become the narrative backdrop to mm -hmm. the Quran's revelation. And so it's through the lens of those later traditions that then you can make sense of which ones came when, Yeah. but it's on the basis of a story told much, much later mm -hmm. without any historical backing. Yeah. So then you ask the question, well, peaceful verses later, violent verses later, how do, you, how do you determine that? In some ways, both communities could make the argument that their texts are the ones that are binding on current society. Yeah. And so 
the vast majority of Muslims, I think, on the basis of common grace, are going to recognize, hey, if I'm serving God and God is merciful and gracious, it probably should follow that I should not be an active, you know, bloodthirsty yeah. uh, aggressor. I, violence doesn't seem to correspond to this vision of, of who God is. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say common grace pushes the vast majority of Muslims to deny this sort of aggressive, radical expression of Islam. But for those who would derive their more violent trajectory from the pages of the Quran, even though the vast majority of exegetes are going to deny their, the legitimacy of their interpretation, you could say they have some legitimate grounds yeah. for their claim given the hermeneutical yeah. It's not a clear, a clear enough organizing principle to say that's just completely obviously out of bounds. Right, right. Yeah. So a lot of what you're saying, it's, it's interesting because there's so many parallels between, um, and maybe this is just monotheistic religion in general, but it's like you've got, okay, there is this one God who is the true God. Mm-hmm. We agree. There's the sort of, uh, I mean, they, they talk about Abraham and some of the prophets. It's like, we agree. Jesus is in there. It's like, hey, we, we, we both know that guy. Um, and then you start talking about interpretation, and you're like, well, I've heard Christians say, well, the Old Testament, that was, you know, Israel has to fight against. So it's, but that's not what Jesus is doing. But we might say we have a clear organizing principle of how to work that out, perhaps that the Quran mm-hmm. doesn't. But all this stuff that you're saying, and then you, I think that one of the other things you said that, that kind of clicked in my mind was, well, we don't really know if Muhammad is just uh, a person of history or a person of faith. Well, people mm-hmm. say that about Jesus, right? Yep. Yep. So thinking through some of that, I'm sure you've dealt with this a thousand times. Hmm. How do you work through the, the two claims of saying, no, Christianity has a more historical basis, mm-hmm. more consistency with reality, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say, because the critiques are the same yep. in many ways, and then yep. the answers are different. So how do you work through some of that in terms of Christianity's veracity versus Islam. Yeah, no, that's good. I think there's a number of different ways. Um, uh, just call to mind one that I was just recently having with a student here who was kind of struggling with some of his own doubts about, you know, how do we, how do we know which which faith is telling the truth? And uh, I just kind of walked him through saying, I do think that historical reliability of the the person and work of Jesus, um, the fact that there's corroborating evidence to a guy named Jesus who preached and taught throughout the region of Palestine in, um, in the first century and was crucified publicly and then something crazy happened and all of a sudden people started saying he, he wasn't dead anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that historical attestation to some of those events is a pretty key element in, in my distinction between what's going on with the questions about the person of Muhammad and the person of Jesus. Because when you start with those, uh, those historical details, and then you begin to take steps either into what Jesus reportedly said ab- to expect about his ministry, mm-hmm. and then the ways that he tied that into documents that were written thousands, you know, a thousand years before his life as they're uh, attesting to these things that are happening in detail in Jesus' life, you have to start asking the question, what happened and were we told that it was going to happen? Mm -hmm. And if these things are lining up, and if the reports of these things caused a whole community of people to testify to their veracity to the degree that they were put in prison and killed for this testimony and didn't give up, they didn't say, okay, we we give, you know, before the lions came, Mm -hmm. but they said, no, this is the one true story of the universe, and if it means dying to report it, I'm going to take it seriously enough to continue even as the lions crunch my bones. Mm-hmm. Um, 
to, to say this is what happened. If all these things are happening and there's an organizing interpretive grid that leads us to these events and connects them to the redemption that God said he was going to bring for mm-hmm. sin-stained humanity, bearing his image and being restored to a place where they can offer pleasing worship to him, then I think we have to wrestle with not only the historical but the theological yeah. logic of what these events say. Even if you grant the traditions um, veracity and you you take the Islamic story for what it is on face value, the theological output is not as satisfying, neither to the history that it claims to extend in claiming to continue the Jewish and Christian revelation into the Quran, nor in presenting a world in which a free creator God chose to create in order that he might dwell among his image-bearing creatures Mm -hmm. and resolved sin such that it no longer results in the destruction of sinners in the presence of his holiness, but now can actually reconcile parties that were at war with one another. Um, That seems to fall short of satisfying the, the theological expectations that we would have for a world in which God chose to create. Yeah, that's good. So everybody's making a faith claim. Christianity has more historical backing. I mean, the manuscripts of the Bible, you know, you could make a lot of cases there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But like you're saying, there's also the theological, which sometimes I think we only want to debate on historical grounds. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus Mm -hmm. obviously was real and Muhammad wasn't. So therefore, it's like, well, that actually, even if Jesus is real, that doesn't make a lot of things true about what he says. You know, I always tell students that uh, if you were standing outside the tomb with your iPhone and you could record Jesus walking out, you're not guaranteed to believe that he's the son of God because there were actually people who saw that and it said, mm-hmm. and some doubted. Yes. So Yeah. No, that's a key point. Yeah. So that theological stuff, is that's good. That's a helpful kind of like, there is the faith claim. There's the, the um, how do we make sense of reality? Does this make the best sense of reality? Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. So, um, okay. So you've done all this mission work and something that you're really passionate about is how do we do Christian missions mm-hmm. in these different mm-hmm. worlds? And so, um, I mean, even now it's like, we're, we're talking, I, I come say, give me the history lesson. And you're like, here's how you love your neighbor because you're a Christian. Uh, and a missionary, and that's what I love about you. But so, so we're thinking through that. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on overseas that you and I actually co-wrote something about for the Southeastern Review a while back about how do we translate uh, the Bible into Arabic? How do we relate to the stories of the Quran to the Bible? How do we talk to a Muslim who has come to faith and say, "Here's what you have to fully give up." Yeah. Um, so maybe talk through some of the big debates about what's happening in missions and evangelism to uh, Muslims, and what are some things that you think, like, whether it's your Muslim neighbor in, you know, Mm -hmm. California, or you're over in the Middle East, what are some big things that you would say, like, these are some problems, these are some Mm -hmm. good things, here's some stuff we should avoid, we should be careful of, just any kind of big picture thoughts you have on that. That's good. At the risk of perhaps uh, painting some uh, missionaries in a a light that would be uncharitable. I think the the simplest way to think through what is what is the right order for missions work, it, it would be the order that we're given in the, the commandments that, that Jesus says are the greatest and the second greatest. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think missionaries are those who, for any number of really good-hearted reasons, are highly focused, highly Uh, inclined to be focused on that second part of Mm. loving their neighbor as themselves. And uh, the loving of God is taken as, you know, something for granted that, okay, we love God, so we go to love our neighbors, which is right and good. 
But when you start asking the question, how do I love my neighbor, especially my Muslim neighbor? Well, most centrally, I want to see them understand the gospel. I want to see them know Jesus. And so then you start asking questions. What's the, what's the easiest way to get my Muslim neighbor to know Jesus? And at that point, you start thinking in terms of um, more of an anthropocentric model for mm-hmm. doing missions to say, what are the pieces, the bobs and bits of my theological expectations or the, the cultural trappings that come along with my theology that I can excise in order to make this simple message accessible. And unfortunately, some of the things that get excised in practice are some of those historical uh, historical statements from Nicaea, from Chalcedon, about who Jesus is, especially given what you just mentioned a few minutes ago, that you can get some conversational traction with somebody by talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the more that you affirm, yeah, we, we do believe in Jesus, the more you lean into that initial statement, the more seeming uh, momentum builds in that relationship. And so then when they come back and they say, well, Jesus was just a prophet, you're in a place of saying, well, do I lose the momentum by saying, well, he was more than a prophet? Mm -hmm. Or do I kind of reconceive of what a prophet is and maybe say, well, I mean, Jesus was a prophet, right? So I don't have to I don't really have to challenge that. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon you're letting go of some of those central convictions for the sake of loving your neighbor. And the unfortunate casualty of that is that you're not first loving the God who has so lovingly revealed himself mm-hmm. in the clarity of Scripture and through the theological reflections of the saints who, whose sa- shoulders we stand on. And we begin to compromise our clarity on what God has revealed and what the Bible teaches about the only way of salvation in Christ mm-hmm. because we're more concerned with getting relational traction with our, our Muslim neighbors. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, we talked about like, I mean, we wrote that article about the importance of sonship mm-hmm. and there's, you know, there's some again, like who are, who are just trying to, trying mm-hmm. to reach people, which is awesome. Yeah. Saying, well, well, you know, the father son thing is just, it's a non-starter yeah. for a lot of reasons yeah. uh, in the Muslim community, theologically, and maybe even culturally. So we don't have to say son, we can just say redeemer, we can just say these other things. But as you and I uh, argue, and, and, and what you're hinting at is that the sonship of him being the son of the father who was sent is about as crucial to his identity as any other title you could give him, right? So, and to sort of say, well, we don't have to talk about that. Mm. I could see like, you know, we talk about Muslims doing that. I could see you just talking to your neighbor and being like, do I really wanna push that? Like if mm-hmm. I can get them to come to church with me, mm. If I can get them to say they believe Jesus is Lord, mm. like I'll take that, mm. you know. So obviously that's that's going to be a big problem. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that doesn't mean that you just stand on a street corner shouting Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. And in conversation, there may be times where you wouldn't start with something that is going to be misunderstood and offensive. Sure. But at the same time, if our goal is to share the word of God with our Muslim neighbor and to get them to encounter the scriptures for themselves so that the spirit can be at work conveying these truths to otherwise sin dead hearts. I think the inevitability of them encountering sonship shouldn't be something that they have seen you obscuring in Mm -hmm. your conversation and then all of a sudden pops up in scripture. It should be something that is native to the way that we, uh, that we talk about Jesus who is the incarnate son and, uh, I think because of its essential connection to the gospel itself, we can't be bashful about the things that God has revealed yeah. in order to be more uh, 
uh, amicably related to our our friends, our neighbors. That's not actually loving them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, letting them stay dead in their sins because they yeah. think they believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Probably yeah. not the best. Yeah, best move. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's let's maybe just land the plane here with two or three things you would say to people who have Muslim neighbors, who have Muslim coworkers, who have friends who are Muslims. What are I mean, you've said some of this already, but just kind of summarize. Like, what are two or three big things you would say? Like, here's how to one, just love them as human beings, mm-hmm. and two, share the gospel with them in a way that's meaningful. Yeah. I mean, first thing about loving them and developing a relationship, my goodness, most of the Muslims that I know, uh, either in the Middle East or, or here, are eager to have, uh, to have American non-Muslim friends, to mm-hmm. be able to uh, display the fact that they are not the stereotypes that they fear mm-hmm. their neighbors have of them. So uh, there's typically uh, an eagerness to befriend somebody. So take initiative and just lean into that friendship. Um, what you'll find is that they're also typically not as bashful about some of the things that are taboo to our uh, born and bred non-Muslim American neighbors who uh, are totally disinclined to talk about anything of faith. Like our Muslim friends, on the other hand, like that's, that's woven into everything they do. I mean, you can't sneeze without having to say some sort of a theologically loaded <laughs> response mm. in Arabic. So everything in their lives is interwoven with spiritual things. So the opportunity to talk about things of faith is, uh, is ever present. And then third, I'd say ask questions. Like ask questions and listen and listen with the intent to hear, not just words that you would immediately latch onto and say, oh, I, I agree with that because mm-hmm. that's a word I use, but ask further questions like with the Jesus thing. Say, well, when you say Jesus, what do you think of? Because Jesus is, of course, the most central thing to my faith. I want to know, are we saying the same thing? And then finally, the, the temptation in some of these situations, especially when you get into theological conversations, is to move into debate mode. Mm-hmm. But man, if you can ask questions that would lead into a natural opportunity to be able to say, well, I could answer some of this protest from my own answers, my own mind, my own it, put it in my own words. But the thing is, my convictions are rooted in the scriptures. Yeah. So could I actually show you what John 1 says? And could we read that? As much as you can, open scripture and show that that is your source of authority and then allow the spirit to work through his inspired words to work in the hearts of of our Muslim friends, that's going to pay dividends uh, way more than uh, just hearing your explanation of a regurgitated, you know, Trinitarian discussion. Mm -hmm. Let them see it in the text. Certainly there's time for the more apologetic or even more deeply theological nuanced responses, but Primarily, we want to be people of the book who see this as our foundation and who invite people to consider it. So do what you can to get your Muslim neighbors reading alongside of you. All right. Well, thanks, Matt. Thanks for doing this conversation with me. We've talked about it for like two years, and I've been a bad friend and neighbor and haven't done it, but we finally made it. So My heart is warm. (laughs) 